Okay, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, we've got Wumbo Myco in the house. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Here we are about to dive into the Wumbo Myco universe. So how's it going today for you? Great. I'm doing fine. Lots of work as always, but I'm uh, enjoying what I do every day. That's what's up, man. Well, let's dive right into genetics because I know that's something that you work a lot with. You're a citizen scientist. You work with genetics, and it's something we briefly talked about when we met in person. So I'd love to continue that conversation and start off with what are some of the genetics you're currently working with? And do you ever crossbreed them to create new strains? And what's that whole process like for you? Absolutely. I work with a lot of strains. I currently have about a hundred in uh, my library right now. But some of my favorites that I've been working with currently are Ecuador. Um, this is a, a land race strain from Ecuador that's been in domestication for a little while. Um, <clears throat> Wild Treasure Coast has been a really great one. Um, uh, I these genetics, I, you know, I I don't I haven't gotten them from the wild myself. I source them from other people. Like uh, Humboldt Fungi has been really great giving me uh, the Ecuador. Um, I believe Isolated Moose in uh, uh, has uh, has given me uh, the, the Wild Treasure Coast. And yeah, I've been working with a lot of mushrooms uh, or a lot of strains like Yeti, things like that. Uh, the Tat lineage I've found has a really good potency and spectrum of alkaloids. And so I've really enjoyed crossing Yeti into different uh, lineages. Like uh, my current favorite strain I'm working with is Avalanche, one that I created by crossing uh, Melmec, uh, a penis envy variant and Yeti together. It's, uh, in my opinion, increased the yield that you can get from the Yeti while also um, keeping a, a very strong uh, potency that's sort of out of this world. It's testing as high as Enigma at times so, or even higher sometimes. So yeah, those are the strains that I've been working with a lot recently. And with the methods that I use for crossing, I. You know, it's hard to name all of them right now because I, I'm actually doing something like 24 experiments at once using a, uh, a sort of less traditional method of breeding. If you'd like me to get into that, <laughs> I can. I would love to. Yeah, because I'm learning a lot right now. And, you know, I have never personally done agar work. I have sourced my tissue cultures and my liquid cultures from mutual friends of ours. And even just cultivating for me is sort of something I'm not great at, you know, like I'm lucky if I can yield a couple of ounces, right? And like, but there are wizards out there who I'm friends with who are much better at it than me. So I like to, you know, partner up with them and do my thing. And so I, I, I want to, I want you to dive as deep as possible into it because I think there's a lot of people like myself that have recently got into cultivating. Like I've been a consumer of mushrooms for years. I've been a supporter of the underground culture for years, but like the thought of actually diving into like breeding and doing agar work and all of that is kind of like 
it's daunting, right? Especially if you don't have an academic or like a mycological background and you don't, you know, I'm still using a still air box and all that. So like step by step, I want to get to the point, And I think a lot of other people do where we're learning the more comprehensive study of it. So yeah, please go into, you know, your methods as much as you want to disclose. Breeding is great. There are very many ways to do it. Um, and the traditional method is pairing two single spores together. Um, of two different strains, um, and that can take a lot of work. So, um, what I what I've been working on, I've seen from uh, research papers for other fungi, other bacteria, things like this. Um, and sorry, <laughs> excuse me. I've developed a method of um, exchanging the DNA of the two uh, strains without having to use spores, using dicaryotic mycelium of the two. So uh, fully grown plate mycelium, I can, with this method, you can scrape it off, put it into a tube, um, put a solution into this tube, undergo a reaction. Um, and after this reaction, the DNA from the two have been interchanged. Um, to go a little deeper into what that actually means, um, the the chemical buffer that's added to the to the DNA of the of the two species or the two strains, sorry, um, the chemical buffer weakens the cell wall of the uh, of the fungal cells and allows the DNA to exchange between these two cells. Um, what happens in in a more technical term is that. Uh, each cell has two nuclei, and they can exchange one nuclei from each cell with the other. Um, after that, the cells progress, and when the mushroom grows, uh, like fruits, and uh, starts to produce spores in the basidia, those two nuclei will fuse together, um, and that will solidify that genetic change within the lineage. Um, and yeah, you've introduced the, the genetic code of two mushrooms into one. <laughs> Hell yeah. You know, I followed most of that. It's taken me back to AP bio sophomore year of high school. I, I think it it's so important, though, that we, we share this kind of information, because I do think there's a lot of people who are coming to mycology that want to know this stuff. And like, you know, pouring through the shroomery and arrowid and forums and stuff like that. It's like, you know, I know that's part of the plug for why somebody might want to support your Patreon or like go into Wombo Myco. It's like, you know, as novice cultivators and people interested in this stuff, it's easy to get bogged down by the information because there's just so much of it out there. And like, I've been researching pretty extensively and haven't come across an explanation like that. I just see that, you know, some people are good at breeding, like Ryan Paul Gates and terrestrial fungi are great at breeding. Other people don't know shit about breeding, you know, and obviously there's a lot of other names that are emerging, but I think it's really cool to like open source this information and get it out there. And to that end, I'd love to hear about your educational background a little bit, because you sound like you know what the fuck you're talking about. Like, do you have a uh, mycological education in a formal sense, or are you like an autodidact where you just need to taught yourself and learn to yourself? Yeah, so I, I, you know, it is a little contentious with a lot of people calling yourself a mycologist when you do not have a mycology degree. And so a lot of times I like to say I'm a citizen scientist. And yeah, I do not have a mycology degree. I'm, I'm not formally educated in mycology, although, you know, I, uh, I have gone to school and, you know, taken some classes that pertain to microbiology and stuff, but, you know, nothing too in depth. Mostly what I've done is, is you know, the Academy of, uh, of, 
uh, Google Google Scholar, you know, <laughs> reading a lot of research papers. I got my in working for a couple of mushroom farms that grew gourmet mushrooms and had actual mycologists there that I could just continually bounce questions off of and get answers to um, all day for around three years. When you do a lot of this research online, you get a lot of maybe facts or ideas that could be facts. Since mycology is so new, a lot of it is not always translated into practical use in the exact way that the theory is, if you sort of get what I'm saying. Like, for example, like there are a lot of um, things you can use in your media for um, agar that potentially should be antifungal, but we, we use them every day and um, and, and our mushrooms grow plenty fine on them. So, so, you know, sometimes the literature doesn't always translate. So going to an actual mycologist and continually asking them, using their learned experience, using that, uh, was basically my biggest tool. Uh, finding people smarter than me and, and in the community as well. It, it was a lot of, uh, you know, I've been, I started with uh, cultivation six or seven years ago, um, just doing reishi, lion's mane, stuff like that um, on a home grow scale. And so I've been in the Instagram community um, for a long time with all of the people coming up in it, just bouncing questions off of them. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, what's your experience here? So that's that's how I, I, <laughs> I got to where I am, basically. It's been so helpful for me to, to get to know a few people, which is also why I'm gonna plug some of these in-person events. It was so cool to meet all these people who you only know as an account and you've seen their name and you've like messaged them and then you get to have a conversation with them. And I think that is such a, a needed, necessary avenue for the future of the myco industry and of the community is like to be able to lay the foundations and then like pursue them. And you know, you can ask, there's a few of these different accounts that like I've just pestered them with questions because I suck at growing mushrooms is the fact of it, you know, but it's something that's important to me. I've been buying them for years and you know, it never really occurred to me. Like I grew with a kit and that was the first way I did it. I think I got like a Midwestern grow kit and it was dope. Like I had cakes, you know, I probably grew an ounce of mushrooms and like that kind of got me hooked. But I realized like I kind of bought everything. Like I bought the medium already sterilized, you know, I bought all the equipment and like all that. So the next step was like, how can I get more proficient at this with like me learning the more comprehensive strategy of what it takes? And, you know, I, I'm intimidated by agar work. I really am because I had nine cultures that I was gifted from a mutual friend of ours. And through one bad transfer of trying to fill some sterilized corn with them, I fucked up all nine cultures. I didn't do it under the appropriate conditions. And like where I live, that's a luxury to get cultures. It's hard to ship things. It's not necessarily as easy as it should be. So anyway, I was like traumatized by it. Fortunately, we have backups of all the cultures and I have much better mycologist friends who are doing the grows and you know their place. And that's what it's all about. But like, I wanna get to a point where like I'm self-sufficient. And I think a big part of that is like learning how to isolate, learning how to work. So another question I wanted to ask you was I was perusing the Wumbo Myco website and I saw that you prefer, I've never actually even heard of this, but gelum gum to agar. And why is that? Why is that? Uh, gelin. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could pronounce it however, because uh, I, I honestly don't know the real pronunciation. I, I think I say gelin gum, but yeah. Um, I like gelin gum for um, starting spores in particular, because when you use something like eight to nine grams per liter of gelin gum, it creates this very nice, soft, and moist uh, media 
that allows the spores to germinate. Whereas a lot of times when I use a harder media that has say like uh, 20 grams of agar in my per liter of my, my media, um, I get this very hard and uh, usually drier on top uh, media that the spores sometimes don't really always fully come to fruition. Um, I can get stalling and issues like that. Um, for isolation, I like the gelin because it's clear as glass. It's, it's uh, optically um, clear. And so if there's any contaminants on there, it's very easy to spot them um, and, and look through the bottom of the, of the Petri dish to see, you know, um, if there's anything growing under your mycelium, things like that. Now for uh, actual isolation and, and looking for what grows best, I actually prefer uh, agar, oh, we, I call it something like a, a high sorghum yeast agar media. Um, and that means I'm using something like 25 to 30 grams per liter of sorghum syrup. I'm using maybe a gram or two of yeast extract in that. I'm using like 20 grams of agar and a liter of water. And that's my media. Um, it runs beautifully for me when, uh, when I'm looking for cultures that will be aggressive and they're already clean. Awesome. Thank you for going into that. So I want to throw another topic of conversation out here that maybe you know nothing about, but so I recently did a podcast I haven't released yet with someone who's a veteran of the cannabis industry. And a lot of these folks are migrating over into mycology, you know, to some degree have already been here. But one thing she mentioned that just really caught my attention when I asked her about like topics or, or like kind of niche topics that people involved in the mycology space or the emerging psychedelic space should be aware of or look into potentially to stay ahead of the curve. And she mentioned something about putting cannabis genetics on the blockchain. And I figured, well, if you can do that with cannabis genetics, why wouldn't you be able to do that with mushroom genetics? Now, I've never heard anybody talk about this, but it does seem like something, you know, as more people get involved in the space and like look at these sort of like disruptive technologies, like we can't be the only one or she can't be the only one who's talked about putting genetics on the blockchain. I just want to hear, have you ever heard anything about this? Do you know anything about this or is this totally new to you? Uh, well, as far as blockchain technology goes, I, I understand it to an extent, but I'm certainly not um, knowledgeable enough about it to make a lot of prescriptive statements. I do know that there are people who have been thinking about this for, for mushrooms, for genetics or things like this. I do know there are also people who have been thinking about doing things like inserting um, certain genetic markers into their mushrooms in order to be able to patent the genetics, things like that. I don't know which direction it would go. You know, I, I, if you were to put it on the blockchain, I'm not entirely sure what the intentions of the person are. So I'm not sure what utility would come from it, because I think the, the utility comes more from sort of what you do with that, right? Like it's, it's yes, it's on a, it's on a network that uh, I guess is publicly accessible and, and stuff, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure uh, what the structure or function of that would look like. Sure. I just wanted to throw it out there because it just was like one of those things we just kind of glossed over, like she just mentioned it. And later when I was editing the podcast, I was like, holy shit, what did she just say? Like that totally. But anyways, I think there's going to be a number of those kind of like cultural touch points we're going to have to deal with as a community. And as it gets rolled out, it's like there's going to be some people, you know, there's already a 
quite a conversation around patenting nature and about like applying for IP. And, you know, I've had that conversation pretty extensively. And some of the people who come on the podcast represent large companies. And obviously they have a different perspective. And then I have a lot of underground activists who are just not about that bullshit. So I just think it's good like to draw it out and talk about it. Anyways, thank you for indulging that for a second. Let's shift gears into something you probably have a lot more knowledge of and experience with. And that's psilocybin potency testing, because that has come out hot in the last year. And even within the myco community, right? Like there's only a handful of people, honestly, that are A, doing the testing or B, even submitting their samples to have the testing. And I know that there's been some controversy or like discussion about like the way that samples have been handled, the labs that have been used, things like that. And like people have been bringing these subjects to my attention since I have had people on the podcast who have talked about their psilocybin potency testing, you know, going back maybe towards the beginning of the podcast, we even had David Poplin talking about HPLCs. And at the time I had never heard of a high performance liquid chromatography test. Right. And now there's more companies than ever that are starting to do it. And there's like competitions that are getting rolled out. So I just want to know, have you had experience? I think you briefly mentioned it earlier. Have you had experience getting your mushrooms potency tested? And what has that experience been like? And do you think that this is an increasingly important domain within the myco community that people should be focusing on is testing their mushrooms, double blind testing, using multiple labs and things like that. I would just love to go into psilocybin potency testing in general right now. Yeah, I could address that broadly at first and get a little more in detail if you'd like. So with testing, there are are many ways to quantify what is inside of a mushroom. And HPLC is one of them. And it gives us quantitative data uh, of of what is inside of the mushroom. Essentially, what what you're seeing on the readout is a peak, um, a peak and a valley. Um, The peaks are usually they're not definitely a single substance. We can't 100% say that this is psilocybin or something when we see this peak, but we can say we have a reasonable uh, assumption that this is a high likelihood that this peak is psilocybin and that the height of this peak determines a specific level uh, or range of psilocybin or psilocin or another tryptamine, right? The complications come into play in that HPLC in and of itself is not specifically the most accurate way to point out which uh, molecules are in there. So you can, you know, if you do not know where those peaks are supposed to show up or how exactly they're supposed to look, it can be possible for you not to be able to test for certain compounds. When you use something like a um, spectrometry, mass spec, that can uh, highly increase your ability to count the specific substances in there, but maybe isn't as efficient at getting you fast results for the levels of those substances. Um, Harder to read sometimes. But again, like I could go on forever. There are numerous methods. Uh, There's gas chromatography. There's And and people have explained this to me. I'm no expert. I'm not a chemist, uh, not an expert in this, but um, I'm well aware that there are a lot of ways to measure these things. And so the complications come in where none of us are ever going to have the resources to test in all of these ways and get a full, say, let's say like a thumbprint of what is inside of these mushrooms that we can uh, uh, be sure of. And so we are running with sort of the best that we've got at the moment. When we run HPLC, a lot of times we can say with psilocybin and psilocin, we, you know, we, we have an idea of this range that it's in, and that's great for harm reduction, 
and helping people uh, make sure that they're not taking far too much of what they should take. But uh, if we want to get into the actual science of, of exactly what's inside of these mushrooms, it's, it's very hard um, to get to that point. I think where I want to go from here is uh, the idea that it is always good to do, and I very much support people submitting tests, but I do want people to understand that they're never going to know a hundred percent what that exact number is that that's supposed to be in it, right? We're we're working with ranges. We're working with non-absolutes. I have had some uh, mycelium tested um, for potency. That has been the only species I've ever seen so far um, come back with uh, positive results for testing. Um, this is Psilocybe subtropicalis or something close to that. It was originally labeled Psilocybe huxigenii, but uh, ITS sequences show that um, it is not huxigenii, that it's something more closely related to subtropicalis. The mycelium was grown on grain uh, and it colonized whole oats for about two months, was then broken up, dried in a dehydrator, um, and submitted for HPLC testing and came back at 0.056% um, for its total tryptamine. This is psilocybin and psilocin content um, combined. And uh, that's significant because that is, when compared to like a wild cubensis, um, that would mean that a tablespoon of these grains are about as potent as a, a gram of wild cubensis mushrooms. Um, I thought it was a uh, pretty remarkable results because this would mean that um, uh, for, for some reason, this mushroom contains something inside of it that begins the production of these alkaloids um, before fruiting cycle, which is in a lot of people's theories is not why mushrooms produce alkaloids. Mushrooms produce alkaloids to protect the fruiting body uh, from insects. Or, or different things like this, right? Um, I've had things tested. Another one that I've had tested was um, psilocybe, or sorry, Penelius cyanescence uh, Peace River, the genetics uh, I received from Inoculate the West. Um, it was tested around 1.767 total tryptamines, um, which was pretty remarkably high. Things have tested higher than it. Um, and I think there has even been recent testing of panscience from uh, Doma's lab from uh, Magic Myco that were incredibly high, um, almost twice as high in potency as this. Um, so I think this species, it just, it, it sort of signifies to us that this species contains a very interesting spectrum of tryptamines. It's very high in psilocin. Psilocin can have a very fast onset and very much different uh, uh, feel to it than psilocybin in people's anecdotal experiences. Um, and so um, I think that it just makes it a very uh, exciting you know, species to investigate. Um, I've also had a sclerotia tested, which were, um, people know them as philosopher stones or truffles. Uh, they uh, were from uh, Slosby tamponensis and they tested quite low. Um, and so what this signified to us, uh, they'd actually tested 0.063%. So that was around the same as the colonized grains, 
this signifies to me that um, these actually lose quite a lot of potency in the drying process because people's anecdotal experiences reports that the fresh truffles or the fresh thorosha are um, much more potent uh, by weight. Get into the music gear. Let's hear about it. What do you put on in the lab? Yeah, I, I have been a musician since I was a kid. I haven't played a lot of music in the recent uh, last four or five years, but you know, I, I grew up playing piano, saxophone. Um, I did all sorts of classic jazz, symphonic. Um, I played in a punk band. I uh, learned bass guitar, all that kind of stuff. It was very integral in my life. Um, and uh, um, in the in the lab, I, you know, I listen to all sorts of different music. I'm, I'm into pretty much anything you put in front of me. Um, some of my favorite bands recently have been, um, I believe, oh, I believe they're a uh, Cuban funk band, Cuban, oh, I'm forgetting, but um, they are, oh, Afro-Cuban Afro funk, um, and uh, it's called Cocoroco, a beautiful band. Um, I, I really like um, uh, King Cruel, he does sort of more indie music, uh, Thundercat does a lot of like jazz bass, yeah. Um, and then I'm, I'm always big into hip hop. Uh, it's anything that, that, you know, can really get me, get me moving. Love it. Um, I, I dabble into metal. I like, uh, animals as leaders a little bit. I like the stuff that's a little more melodic in the metal side. Um, so that's like progressive metal. Um, yeah, I, I could go on forever about it. <laughs> Well, I love when you were going with the Afro-Cuban funk, Buena Vista Social Club immediately came to mind. I'm a big fan of that album. Uh, I like world music a lot too. I love what David Byrne and Brian Eno do too, like going out and like there's an album where they go to Africa and uh, uh, very on brand for me. There's a band that I've been following recently that's called Afrodelica and they've just absolutely blown me away. And they have a lead singer who grew up in Rwanda and then migrated to Brazil and then lived in New York City, now lives in Mexico. And it's just like, she's brought all those influences with her and they have a huge presence. They have, you know, a full horn section rhythm section and just like multiple guitarists she's incredible the dancers on stage so i love that it's this more of sense of community it's more egalitarian they've got a whole ass vibe on stage and the audience feels like they're part of that music and it's interesting when you look at like traditional indigenous societies and you see a lot of like shared music making as opposed to like the western standard pop format where it's like you have the pop singer and then you have the audience consuming the product and i just think that Look, looking at like a lot of uh, a lot of indigenous societies is also an interesting way to think about how we could frame the emerging psychedelics ecosystem. Does it have to be so hierarchical where it's controlled in a top-down format? And like, it increasingly looks like it's gonna be that way where like you have to pay for expensive licenses, you have to have, you know, certain blessings regulators, but does it have to be that way or could there be alternative models? And I think when you look historically, it's the alternative models that function. Just a, an interesting thought I just kind of formed did that on the fly so i hope it made sense no i i i uh yeah i believe there i believe there are plenty of alternative models i i personally am yeah i personally am not a fan of uh, hierarchy unless it has some sort of justification um i guess you could call me an anarchist in ways but i don't really use it to guide a lot of my political prescriptions in the real life it's more of my idealism um but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a fan of hierarchy and I do think there are plenty of ways to make um, 
either cultivation of mushrooms or the dissemination of information of, of how to do so, the science around it. I think there are ways that you can make that less hierarchical, more horizontal, more communal based. Um, if you were, if I were to have to give you a, a model for it, I think it would be hard to get uh, an encompassing model in a short amount of time. But um, no, I think that um, working towards a, a better model of informational dissemination, of uh, dissemination of medicine, uh, things like this is, is great to do. Um, uh, the last question that I have for you today, Wumbo Maiko in the house. Last question that I have for you today is what are some of the projects that you're working on right now that you're excited about that you can share with us or maybe something on the horizon for Wumbo Maiko? Sure. Um, I, so I have um, available on my website recombination kits, which you can use um, the uh, mycelium from liquid culture or plates, dicaryotic mycelium to cross two strains. But I'm also working on taking that a step further as all that does is make it um, easier to cross within strains. I haven't had a lot of success trying to cross outside of species um, and go a step further and use what is called protoplast fusion to try and um, strip cells of their cell wall and pair them together. Um, and so that I can cross things like pink oyster with king oyster, things like I, I just really want to play around with those to see if we can get some more interesting, um, fascinating gourmet species um, to the public as well. Um, that's sort of what I what I really want to focus on is the um, the gourmet uh, aspect of of mushrooms because I feel like there's so much variety within the the within cubensis um, that uh, and and so much less focus on on the gourmets. Yeah. Straight up. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I have learned a lot, and I imagine that plenty of the folks in the audience have also upped their myco game, thanks to you. So I really appreciate you coming on, and you're welcome back anytime you want to come on the podcast and talk genetics, talk music, talk whatever. So thanks again, Wumbo Myco. I appreciate you having me. Uh, anybody can find me at Instagram, Wumbo underscore Myco, and uh, I have a Patreon as well, the same name, Wumbo Myco. And yeah. Uh, enjoy and i hope uh, everybody can get access to the information they need if you ever have any issues please dm me we have a, a discord where we have a, a lot of awesome um uh you know it's a free a free discord with a lot of awesome growers who are willing to teach you uh anything you need to know there's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced inclusive and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, Willkommen. Bienvenidos. Welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.